This is my favorite part, getting to ring the gong. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Milena Stereo, the Charles R. Emery Jr. and Calfi Halter and Griswold Professor of Law at Cleveland State University. And today we're at the Happy Dog in Cleveland's Gordon Square District, talking about the state of European democracy. In early April of this year, Viktor Orban, Hungary's authoritarian leader and longtime Russian ally, won his fourth consecutive term. Orban viewed his win as a snub to both the European Union and President Vladimir Zelensky of Ukraine, who Orban called an opponent he had to overcome on the campaign trail. And in France, Marine Le Pen ran for the third time on a far-right agenda. While Macron was re-elected, his lead was much less comfortable than in 2017. The slide toward autocracy among some European nations has called into question the health of democracy and the upending of European politics as we know it. What does this all mean for democratic nations worldwide? We're joined today by local experts to discuss what is at stake. Jerry Austin is a political strategist who has worked for years as a consultant in Hungarian elections. And Dr. Elliot Posner is professor and chair of the, of the Department of Political Science at Case Western Reserve University. If you have questions for our panelists, you can do so in the second half of the program, as Dan just explained, or you can also text your questions to 330-541-5794. That is 330-541-5794. You can also tweet your questions at, at the City Club. We will do our best to work them in. Jerry and Elliot, welcome to the Happy Dog. Now let's turn to the first question. As I mentioned in the, in, in, the in the introduction, although most European states are democracies, at least on paper, we have seen this backward slide by some European states away from democracy and towards autocratic governance. Can you tell our audience a little bit more about this backward slide? Which states are we talking about? And how did this slide take place? Elliot, would you like to begin? Uh, sure. Um, thanks so much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be back here at the Happy Dog. Um, uh, so I, I teach um, uh, EU politics up the road at Case. I've been doing it a long time. I've been thinking about these uh, topics for quite a while. Um, so when I hear Hungary in these elections and uh, um, the tendency towards autocracy. Uh, I, I have to say it's a very painful subject for EU experts because, I mean, I guess the place to start here is the EU is supposed to represent one of the um, places where countries that used to be enemies figured out a way to um, belong, to become rich, and the, one of the keys to the recipe was that it was supposed to be liberal democracies. And so here it is a, uh, you know, Europeans have been proud of this, they're a model to the world, example, et cetera. So when, when this started, uh, we use the word democratic backsliding, um, you know, maybe it started to enter our, our, the syllabus on EU politics about 15 years ago. Um, uh, it was really, you know, it wasn't very clear what was happening. Was it a real thing? But yes. Okay, so first, this 
tendency towards, so what are we talking about? We're talking about suppression of free press, unfair elect, uh, less fair elections, um, uh, leaders, parties, nationalist parties that don't uh, uh, show much of a commitment to rule of law. These are all part of the, 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 the category. Who are, who's part of this trend? Well, obviously Hungary, uh, Poland, um, and I should say, it's it's not a, li a linear process here. There's been some positive movements too recently. Czech Republic um, uh, and Slovenia, the uh, uh, autocratic leaning leader in Slovenia was kicked out not long ago. Um, but most of the news in the news must be about Poland and Hungary. Um, uh, I don't know, I don't want to talk too much. I mean, the place to start really is, you know, we've been hearing a lot about the NATO NATO expansion. Uh, but you really need to start at the end of the Cold War, lots of Soviet Union, there was also EU expansion. And at that time, and this is why it's so painful for people like me, at that time, the uh, countries that used to be part of the Soviet sphere of influence and even the Soviet Union, like Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, uh, they really wanted to join the EU. They saw this as their big chance. And, you know, huge market, potentially a way to um, ensure that a, a resurgent Russia never gobbles them up again, you know, this sort of thing. And so Brussels had a lot of leverage at that time. And they used it. They made all of these countries um, uh, basically do backflips to get in. They had to turn their political system upside down. They had to change the way they regulated their economies. They had to change the kind of economy they had, everything. And so finally in 2004, 10 you know, new members, and then a couple of years later, Bulgaria uh, and um, Romania joined. So on paper, they looked very democratic. They, they met all the criteria. This is the, there's fancy names for it. The Brussels took this process very seriously. So you can imagine how within a couple, you know, decade or so later, you think there's a slippage towards autocratic practices. Um, so here, let me tell you why it's, it's disturbing. One, because Europe is supposed to be here liberal democracies, but it's also disturbing for a couple of other reasons. One, we found out that Brussels really had very few tools um, to stop this. And sort of the, the linchpin here is what we see between Poland and Hungary. It's that a lot of these very serious issues in the EU require unanimous voting. So if Hungary can have a POW, and they did in Poland, then they were safe. They could do whatever they wanted. And any effort by Brussels to cut off funds, to sanction them in other ways, uh, uh, wouldn't be effective. So that was one problem. And that's actually been improved. There's a new, as of 2020, there's new tools in the toolbox. And uh, uh, based on qualified majority voting, European Commission uh, can, you know, get in there and actually cut off funds. But the other sort of extremely shocking part was that the Arrangements in the EU inadvertently were supporting Orban and other 
autocratic meaning leaders in a couple of ways. Like I said, it was not intended, but opposition, in, opposition leaders in places like Hungary could be kicked out and they could work somewhere else. So this sort of freedom of movement in the EU sort of enabled people who might in other places stay and be the voice and the agitators, they left. I, I was in France uh, for the year of my sabbatical a couple years ago. A friend of mine at the institute where I was was a Hungarian scientist. He just left, went to France, uh, rather than staying fight. Another thing is that Orban became really good, and other, other leaders too, became really good at diverting even funds to support their cronies through procurement processes, through buying land, Again, there's, a, there's more tools now for the EU to, to stop that practice. And there were other things as well, like um, this gets into the weeds a bit, but in the EU Parliament, uh, for the longest time, Orban's party was welcomed into a mainstream conservative party for, because of sort of a perverse set of um, incentives. So you can see how my, uh, I should attribute this. This is, this is an idea we call it the authoritarian equilibrium in, in Europe. And a friend of mine, uh, Dan uh, Kellerman over at uh, Rutgers, this is his term, and these are, you know, this is the way EU scholars think about what happened. Now, it's just taken, so this is how this trend solidifies. Like I said, slowly, it's taken a while for Brussels, the other EU members to get their footing. And, um, uh, and slowly but surely, they've, they're figuring it out. There was a huge, incredible article in the New York Times about two years ago. Did anybody see that? Where they sort of exposed how EU money was propping up the, um, the new autocrats in Europe. I don't know if you saw that. It was pages and pages of incredible investigation. So, so I, there's a couple of things I think, I mean, maybe I'll come back to this, but we should talk about the war and how the war is changing the calculations. Uh, when we think about the future, what is the EU going to do about Orban now that he's been reelected? Like, what are the, how does that change? Because it really does change things. And, um, uh, um, yeah, I think that's, that's good. I, I think there's one more thing that um, should always be mentioned when we talk about democratic backsliding in, um, in Europe, and that is, this is an international trend. Um, of course, and if you're interested in looking at the patterns across Europe and you want really um, easy to use uh, statistics or data, you just like nice pictures, go to Varieties of Democracy website. Um, a colleague of mine at Case, Kelly McMahon, has been part of this from the get-go. It is the most sophisticated index of measuring autocracy, democracy, um, and changes among countries on a yearly basis. And it's extremely good on Europe, extremely good in other parts of the world. And you can see that in terms of the, the decline of democracy across borders, um, I mean, Europe is one place where it's happening, but it's happening across, it's a global phenomenon. 
Is that a good place to stop? That's a, that's a I mean, I can go, I'm a professor, I can go on and on. That's a great place to stop, and we will definitely continue um, this conversation and talk about the war in just a second. But I wanted to give Jerry the opportunity to weigh in as well. I know you're very familiar with Hungary, we're a consultant there. Tell us a little bit more about this backward sliding Hungary, and if you can drill down a little bit more on sort of how that happened after the you know, sort of promise of the 1990s, or, or, or is that a fake promise? Democracy. Okay, but before I get into that, um, looking around this crowd here, and I see some old friends, and they're probably wondering, you're talking about Hungary? I must be in the wrong place. You know about Hungarians who live in Geiga County, but what do you know about Hungary? And how did you get involved in even being in Hungary? So I'll mention a name that, looking at the age range here, maybe some people will remember this name. The name is. Uh, Dick Celeste. And Dick Celeste was governor of Ohio, for those of you who don't remember, from 1982 to 1990. In 1990, when he was leaving office, he put together a program, it's called Participation 2000, where he uh, invited young people um, to come and participate in the 1990 election being embedded with uh, different candidates from around Ohio and around the country. And um, that group, included a number of young people from foreign countries. Among them were a couple of people from Hungary. That's 1990. So jump ahead to 2005, 15 years later, I get a phone call. I'm looking at my phone and I'm seeing an area code I don't recognize. And it was Hungary. And I'm getting a call from Hungary from a young man that was 15 years older, who was part of that participation in 2000, now involved in Hungarian politics, uh, wanting a American consultant to come over and help them uh, win uh, or keep uh, the, their party in power. And I, I became that person and went to Hungary in 2005 and 2006. And my job was, this is a parliamentary form of government, which as you know, the, the candidate is not on the ballot, but the party who, who amasses the, the most votes winds up picking the prime minister. And the party that I was employed by uh, was in power. And they assigned me six seats. And we had to win three out of the six seats in order to keep uh, the uh, incumbent in, in power. Uh, and my six seats were uh, in an area of, of the country uh, that housed the second biggest city in Hungary. And if anybody here knows the second biggest city in Hungary, shout it out, but it's called Debrecen. And Debrecen is near the Romanian border. Uh, and of the six seats I had, Three of them were in a, uh, a TV market, and three of them weren't. And we won the three in the TV market. And the, the uh, uh, incumbent, his name was Dubishan, uh, wound up winning. Uh, but I saw something in that election which I've never seen before. They had a debate uh, on TV um, where it was an hour debate, and the two candidates debated. But there was something missing. There was no moderator. Now imagine two presidential candidates uh, debating in, in, in the United States with no moderator. And I watched this and was, and was impressed like hell to see these two guys being, being cordial. Uh, and of course, I didn't know what the hell they were saying because they're speaking Hungarian, but it was something I'll never forget. And I, I wasn't involved after that win until this, this year. So 
my involvement was minimal uh, because the election was over before it began. But let me tell you what happened that caused this election. Orban was re-elected, uh, was elected in 2010 and re-elected in 14 and 18. Among the reasons that was Hungary has multiple parties. So if you have Orban running against five or six different parties, it's not difficult for Orban to be, be the winner. So the five or six parties got together after the last election and said, what if we all come together and we, ha and we have a primary? Whoever wins that primary becomes our candidate against Orban one-on-one, -on -one, and we wind up beating them. So they began that process, and they had a primary um, where um, the top three would run off to be the general election candidate. The person that came in first was a, a female who represented uh, basically the Socialist Party. The person that came in second uh, was the mayor of Budapest who just beat an Orban uh, incumbent uh, a couple of years ago, young, uh, progressive, uh, really good candidate. The person that came in third was the, was the representative of the right-wing party that was involved in this coalition. So the primary is over. There's a three-way runoff. And the person that came in second, the mayor of Budapest, decides that the best candidate to run against Orban is the right-winger. And he gets out of the race to support the right winger, who then wins the the uh, uh, the primary and is now the candidate of the coalition. The candidate who won was the mayor of a town that's not much bigger than this bar. He was mayor of a town in rural Hungary, um, and he had never run before. Uh, for a bigger office. Uh, he was a member of a party that had anti-Semitism, anti-gay uh, associated with it, and he became the candidate for the coalition forces. And to give you an idea of why this this uh, election was over before it began, beside, beside the fact that Orban had been in power for, for 12 years, had basically controlled the media, had controlled everything uh, that there was to control um, in, in, a, in, a, in a country, um, including the fact that um, you probably don't know this, but in Hungary there's no registration. You don't have to register to vote. You show up on election day, show you're 18, you get to vote. Um, so what, what happened was that on March 15th every year, they have a big demonstration in Budapest to celebrate the Hungarian Revolution of 1848, when they threw out the, the Habsburgs, whoever it was. And because it was a presidential election or a prime minister election, there were competing um, um, groups of people that would congregate in Budapest. And the opposition party wanted to show its strength, even though they wouldn't have more people than, than the Orban party, and wanted to have a big, a big turnout. I give you a thousand guesses, and I won't waste the time to hear your, your, your responses. Uh, who the opposition party hired to be their event coordinator? Beyonce's road manager. <laughs> I told you, I'd give you a thousand, you wouldn't get it. Um, well, that signaled to me that there was a problem here when they were doing something like that. So I went, I went to Hungary for the last week. I spent three days in, in Budapest helping a candidate who I helped elect 
12 years before who was going to win. There was no no issue. Uh, Budapest is a is a is an opposition stronghold, and they went out into the hustings uh, to help a, a a woman candidate, first time candidate, running against not a 24 year incumbent, but a 24 year family incumbency with two uh basically passed this this parliamentary seat back and forth from each other. And to give you an idea of how the election was over before it began, when we went on election day to a housing complex to get out the vote, uh, we couldn't figure out who in this complex, you know, had voted before, because you want to go after people who are frequent voters, uh, and who we'd have to encourage to get out. And while we're trying to figure out how to do that, along came an Orban person, had a whole list of all the people in that place who were registered to vote and who had voted before. Um, so the, the election was over before, before it began. My, my last point I want to make is that a lot of people had called Orban a Trumpster. The fact is that Trump was an Orbanster. That Trump basically saw in Orban the things that Orban has done in 12 years, things he wanted to do in the United States. Um, controls the media totally has a bunch of his cronies that are on their way to becoming oligarchs who own most of all, all of the country. Um, he is in total control, um, and um, the, the government uh, is one in which whenever they see some uprising of some kind, they basically pass a law uh, to, 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 to basically make that uprising sort of go away. Young people have left Hungary. There aren't any young people there anymore because no future in the and they've left to go to other countries. If you if you were a Hungarian citizen and lived in Cleveland, Ohio, and wanted to vote in the Hungarian election that happened uh, a month ago, was a Hungarian citizen to vote in their election. Um, and, and and the last point is that um, what Orban calls his outcome dictatorship, what he calls his reign, an illiberal democracy an illiberal democracy. And the election that was held was supposed to be between, between autocracy and democracy and autocracy won. Now, Jerry, you mentioned the media and how Orban controls the media. Um, just a few days ago here in the United States, I watched Trevor Noah's speech at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, where at the end he joked how he could still make fun of President Biden and still go home and, and be safe and sort of not be arrested, right? You mentioned how in Hungary, uh, President Orban controls the media. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how is he able to do that? Does he um, own large stakes at the you know, sort of television and the radio or how, how exactly does he control the media? Well, just, just imagine that in Hungary, the only station you could watch is Fox. I mean, what, what he did was he, he put the people in power to control the media while, and have people go and buy uh, everything. And I'll just give you one, one aside here. One of the things that I was, um, uh, I mean, sort of uh, able to do in my heyday of being political consultant, I witnessed the Marcos Aquino election in the Philippines. And uh, for those of you who don't remember that, um, a revolution took place after the election because because uh, Musk was trying to steal the election. And one of the first things that you do in, in a revolution is you go control the media. And as soon as the Aquino people went and took over the national radio station, 
that election and that res uh, that, uh, that revolt is over. So that's what what he did first. They own everything. They control everything. If, if my candidate um, in in the hustings of Hungary wanted to have a press conference, which he did, nobody showed up. That is a scary, scary um, situation. Elliot, anything to add on this? Um, uh, a couple of things, and then I even have a, I have a question uh, for Jerry too. So the first one is pointed out a really important point about Orban. Um, one, he has spearheaded the transnational network and supports their autocratic leaning leaders in Europe and beyond. And you're absolutely right. I, I'm sort of speechless when I hear it, but it, it, Trump copied Orban in several ways. Uh, it's, and so did other autocratic leaders. There's something very special about Hungary. And I think, and so this, is, this leads to the second point. Uh, Orban is, is brilliant. Uh, he has surrounded himself by very capable legal experts and used the law, pushed the law to its edges. So there's so many small steps into gray areas, caught everybody off guard. And I think one of the reasons why um, autocratization hasn't worked as well in places like Poland and Czech Republic and Slovenia is that the people in charge haven't been as um, And so, I mean, I don't know, you can either see this as a optimistic, <laughs> there's, there's something that it's taken a long time, it's been very calculated, and it's been carried out by super uh, clever people. Um, so there's those two points. And so my question for you, I just cannot figure this out. How is it possible? So now I'm switching over to the war, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. How is it possible in a country like Hungary that Orban can win an election by um, uh, uh, taking a, a pro-Putin position? I just don't understand it. That would backfire in Poland. It's not working, it wouldn't work in Czech Republic, it doesn't work in any of these other countries, but why in Hungary was that effective? Well, first of all, Orban is something that Trump is smart, <laughs> very smart, and he is an incredible politician. So what does he do? About two weeks before the invasion, he goes to Moscow, has a photo op with Putin, okay? Now, I don't know what they discussed, but I can, I can guess what they discussed. He goes back home, Russia invades. He condemns, not, not, not immediately, condemns the invasion, okay? And agrees that they'll, that they'll take uh, refugees from Ukraine because they vote around Ukraine. He then accuses the opposition of wanting Hungary to go into the war on the side of the Ukrainians, providing troops total, complete, unadulterated lie. But he says it often enough that we hear, I hear, out campaigning, people repeating that. Well, we don't, we don't want to go to war in, in, in Ukraine. And basically it convinces people that by staying out of the war, um, you know, and helping the Ukrainians, that he's going to be eventually become, keep being friends with Russia. Now, he understands branding, which Trump understood too. 
you know, if we, we could repeat the words right now about what Trump said, but consider that, that Orban did the same thing. Uh, and, and so election night comes, Orban wins easily. First thing he says, not thanking his supporters, not anything positive. He says, I want everybody to know that President Zelensky of the Ukraine is an enemy of Hungary. The first thing he says, which is basically an homage to Putin, right? I'm, I'm, I'm back in the fold now. I took a little, you know, uh, vacation here in order to get reelected. This guy is really smart. Um, and what he really wants is what Putin wants. Not exactly the same, because Putin wants the USSR to come back. And what Orban wants is the Austro-Hungary Empire to come back. Now, let me just interject for just a second and tell our audience members that in just a few minutes, we will turn to your questions. If you're here in person, you can line up next to the microphone here, um, or you can whisper your question to Dan, who's right here. <laughs> um, if you're joining us virtually, you can text your questions to 330-541-5794. That is 330-541-5794. Or you can also tweet your questions at, at the City Club. So I did want to, I'll, I'll ask one last question and then um, we, we'll, we'll turn to audience, audience questions. I did want to talk just a little bit more about the ongoing war in Ukraine, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and how that, um, I don't say changes things in, in Hungary, but you know whether that maybe solidifies Orban's position in Hungary, or um, you know you mentioned um, some of the goals. You said Orban would like the return of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. How, so how does the war? How does it affect the state? The, the fragile state of democracy in a country like Hungary. Well, first of all, understand that Orban allowed refugees to come in. Four hundred thousand came in from Ukraine. But he hadn't done a damn thing for them. And they're scattered all over the place. Most of them are trying to get visas to leave the country. But, but he hasn't done anything for them. But he applied to the, uh, the EU for money to take care of these people who he's not taking care of. Okay? So uh, in terms of you know, uh, uh, the, the war in Ukraine, uh, which really has nothing to do with Orban, but I'm about to say, shows how smart Putin is. Because Putin understands that, okay, all these Western countries are going to come together and the, and the EU and they're going to do these sanctions. He doesn't care. It affects the, the Russian people. It doesn't affect him. It doesn't affect the oligarchs. He knows they're not coming in with troops. Nobody else is sending troops. He knows they're not doing a no-fly zone. I mean, so he, you know, he, he's got us uh, you know, in a position where we can't do anything. Um, and, uh, and so what that, what that says... In terms of you know to democracies in Europe, um, and France is a good example. Yes, Macron won, but he won by less than he did last time. Um, it says you know watch out because these this thing's moving and it's coming in one direction. And it also says to us in the United States, you better really watch out because what happened yesterday in Ohio, uh, in terms of what what happened with J.D. Vance winning here, you know is is basically you know, a, a snapshot of what can happen in this country. Elliot? So, um, so Hungary is a full-fledged member of the European Union. Um, its citizens can work in any country. In, uh, it's another member of the, the Union. 
Uh, companies have access to the world's second largest market. So, you know, the question is, can Brussels do anything about Orban and other countries that go in the same direction? And so I mentioned it has new tools. And the second after the election last month, um, the, the European Commission deployed its new weapon, started the process. Takes everything takes a long time. <laughs> it's, not, it's not happening tomorrow, but potentially for um, violation of rule of law, the um, uh, they could cut off funds, and that's that's very important. Regime. I mentioned also that um, Poland and Hungary are having a, um, a they were allied, and now there's a big wedge between them over the war. Uh, so you would think I'd be optimistic about the future of Brussels being able to put some pressure on, on Hungary. Uh, but in thinking about this war, I, I guess I'm, I'm not so optimistic. And that is because I think we've, we've, the whole world has entered a geopolitical moment, um, especially Europe. And this means that Europeans need to be extremely pragmatic, security is at risk, and many, many decisions, foreign policy decisions need to be made. And in the EU, they require unanimous voting. And they're gonna need Hungary. They're gonna need Hungary on board to do a lot of things. You know, Hungary was on board with the sanctions early on, they did not veto those. So. I think that that's going to put, it's going to really dampen the efforts of Brussels to put pressure on Hungary to, um, uh, to reverse any of its uh, autocratic uh, practices. So I'm not particular, yeah, maybe you have something to say on that. Well, how, I, I just give it a, however, uh, one of the sanctions that the, that the EU is proposing is, is about oil, right? And, and um, both Hungary and I think I think it's Serbia get the majority of their oil from Russia, and haven't done it already. Will appeal for an exemption from that because they get most of their oil from Russia, and if they don't get the oil from Russia, where do they go? Serbia is, of course, not in the EU, but it is a candidate country. And I would say, if you look at <laughs> candidate countries like Turkey, which I think began to be a candidate country in 2005 could be a long, a long road. So let me reveal a personal, you know, thing here. I'm actually from Serbia, so we can, that, that could be a whole other panel. But basically, yeah, so your point about basically how some countries, Hungary, Serbia, actually in some ways depend on Russian oil, and even if they're in theory voting in favor of these sanctions, they're going to ask for exemptions because they just need the oil. Looks like we might have a question, Dan. Kick off the questions and invite anybody who else has a question to come up. But five or six years ago, the rise, there was a, a, a rise in populism that seemed almost coordinated um, between what was happening in, in the UK with Brexit, what was happening in Italy with the Five Star Movement, what was um, what was you know happening in, in Hungary with Orban, it's also happening in Turkey with Erdogan. Um, this all seemed almost coordinated, as if there were. Um, political consultants who were seeding the soil in all of these places. Today, it seems much more fragmented. And I wonder how you both see those dynamics. 
You have five seconds yeah. to prepare your response. What, uh, what do you, I guess I don't know what you mean by fragmented. What do you mean? Like it, well, they don't seem as coordinated. I guess is what you mean. Yeah, they don't seem as they don't seem as coordinated. And some of them that had um, the, the sort of populist uh, promise of Brexit, as nobody's been able to, to. Boris Johnson certainly hasn't delivered on that. And yeah. the and the yeah. five star movement I, in, yeah. in Italy really seems less consequential than it than it well, appeared. Yeah, I do years think ago. that. Populism's lost some of its traction, and it's in part because um, I don't think Brexit went the way that its um, advocates promised. It, uh, you know, we're still in a very messy situation. In fact, if you pay attention to what's going on um, in the UK, you've noticed that actually Brexit hasn't happened because <laughs> Northern Ireland is still part of the EU. It, if you, uh, it's there was this carve out, it's pretty crazy stuff. Um, so I think that's part of it. And I mean, the other part of it is the EU is looking a bit more attractive than it did a few years ago. And one of the reasons, well, first of all, in negotiating with, with the UK, the EU did some job. I mean, they stayed united behind Ireland. They got this Irish protocol in there and they stayed united with all, they, they they put on a tough, they basically said, look, you want out, you have to live with it, we're not bending for you. So um, so that really, I think, helped out the EU. And don't, I mean, I know the headlines in the papers are always the EU's falling apart, but if you um, look look carefully at what's going on, it's, there's some really impressive things going on. They agreed to issue mutualized debt uh, during the coronavirus. Now, nobody five years ago would have, ever predicted that that the Germans would say that they'd be responsible for uh, um, group, the groups not paying back an in, in international bond. I mean, this is a spectacular step in the direction of unification, and nobody imagined it. I mean, there's also been other things that have been you know, gradually creeping in over time. This is a slow-moving machine. Okay, the immigration seemed like a disaster a few years ago with the, the Syrian the, uh, Syrian mi migrants flowing into Europe and overwhelming the system. But gradually, slowly, they, you know, they, they patch it up. This is kind of how it works in the EU. Well, to, to, to answer Dan's question, um, so I'm, I haven't said anything outrageous here, so I might as well say something <laughs> outrageous to, to keep my reputation. Um, I think that the that the, the people behind uh, the what you described having five or six years ago were the Koch brothers. And and and, and when I say the Koch brothers, I mean, and I can't prove it, either them really or some version of them um, was was behind this. Uh, I don't think these things happened by by accident. Uh, I can also say, not outrageous, that who wasn't involved was probably George Soros, uh, even though Orban blames George Soros for everything. Now, I did want to return to this theme of, oh, actually, we have more questions, so I'll, I'll hold mine. Then. Go ahead. Thank you. Um, there was a mention earlier of this move toward autocracy being more of a, an event outside of just Europe. And on that spectrum of Orban to Trump, where do you put AMLO in, in Mexico? No, I don't. I don't. I mean, I'm not familiar with with, with that, so I won't. I won't pretend to, to talk like I'm knowledgeable. So I'm not. 
but I just answer it this way. And he doesn't belong in the same conversation with, you know, with Orban. And when he gets to it, they'll know more about him. Hi, uh, first of all, thank you very much. It's a really interesting uh, conversation. My question is more about what was, um, what was really sort of set the field for all of this happening, right? So in the U.S., I feel like a lot of the Trump support was from the impact of globalization, right? So academics, so I studied at the London School of Economics, and academics like you and I, we love globalization, but at the local level, somebody in Youngstown losing their job uh, because of NAFTA, they're going to vote for Trump, right? And I can't fault them for that because they lose their livelihood, and so they don't like globalization, right? So in the U.S., I'm kind of clear on what sort of set the stage for Trump getting into power. What happened in Europe? What were the factors like that, if any, that, that set the stage for Orban and other people like that? Well, I can put, you know, I can put forth a couple of ideas there. I mean, there's, you know, lots of reasons. This is a huge question. What's responsible? How did this happen? Uh, so one, one thing that happened, um, well, in the big, at the highest level of sort of factors, um, I remember I was a graduate student when, um, just after uh, the Cold War ended, and um, there were these towering professors, I was at Berkeley, and there were two, there was a historian, Martin Malia, there was a political scientist, um, Jowett, what was his first name, I can't remember, and they, they were saying the same thing. They, they called it the Leninist legacy, that um, uh, when you put in place a totalitarian regime that smothers civil society, that um, uh, does all the things that we know that it does, it's really hard to build a democracy in that foundation. Um, so part of it is just the sheer difficulty of creating a constitutional um, liberal democracy in the ashes of this uh, former type of regime. And another one is that um, you remember that the, the 10 countries, the 12 countries that joined the EU um, at the end of the Cold War, there were others, they call it enlargement. And so the, the, uh, there were other countries that joined and some of them weren't the typical rich countries. It was Spain, Portugal, um, Ireland, and Greece. And compared to the deal that they got, a lot of these countries feel like they got a bum deal. <laughs> the, I mean, the basic reason why is that the Germans weren't feeling uh, quite as flush at the time because they were dealing with their own unification, reunification of the East, which was so expensive. And they felt like they had to tighten their belts. And so there wasn't as much money getting thrown around. And there was some resentment. The, the third thing is the bureaucratization, not in the way the British talk about it. It was in the way that the enlargement happened that you really, they, for a lot of people living in these countries, they felt like they gave up um, their, their recently uh, revived sovereignty from the Soviet Union, and they had to now follow the acquis. It's, called, it's this crazy, when you join, you have to be compliant with everything that was ever agreed by all, it's, they call it a key communitaire. It's this pile 
thousands and thousands of pages that you have to comply with. So there isn't a lot of wiggle room there. <laughs> so those are just some big picture reasons why there might be some festering resentment, both against the EU, but also anger about their, their situation. Let me, uh, let me give you an answer to that, but, but more from a Trump point of view than, um, I'm not an expert on European anything, and so I went to Hungary, so now I'm an expert on Hungary. But, but uh, I wanna tell you a story, because that's what I do, I'm a storyteller. Um, while teaching at the University of Akron Business, I would take my class um, on a class trip. You remember the third grade, you went on a class trip to the fire department, the police department? <laughs> so I, I took them to South Carolina to the Republican primary going on in 2016. And we, we went to a Trump rally, to a Cruz rally, to a Kasich rally, and, and a Rubio rally. So we go to a Trump rally, and this is early in 16, and I'm thinking, you know, Trump's, you know, this is ridiculous. I mean, this guy isn't going anyplace. Everybody knows he's nuts and et cetera, et cetera. So we go to this rally at 12 o'clock in Myrtle Beach, 12 o'clock on a Thursday. And there's a huge crowd lined up to get into this facility, which I find out uh, houses 9,000 people, no, no chairs. Everybody's standing. On the way in, we see a guy who's got a sledgehammer and a hard hat and he's saying, I'm ready to build a wall. We see a woman dressed as the Statue of Liberty. And I tell my class, you know, we, we're going to a circus and this is the sideshow. So we get, in, we get inside and there's 9,000 white people. Um, and the average age is probably 50. Um, and the pastor ceremonies comes out. And if you didn't know any better, you thought it was Jimmy Swagger. Um, and he, he says, Mr. Trump is running late. Uh, we're going to have a musical interlude until he gets here. Okay, musical interlude. People are talking, and I'm listening to this. I'm, I'm hearing the music, and I'll give you another million guesses on, on who uh, the, was singing. It was Pavarotti. No. Uh, you imagine Pavarotti is singing at a Trump rally. Well, everybody's looking around because they can't figure out what the hell, what is this? Anyway, I'm looking at these folks, and I'm thinking, why are they here? You know, I mean, first thing you learn in politics is that people come to see a candidate first, on, 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 you know, out of curiosity than out of commitment. And so Trump was, you know, somebody that's coming to Myrtle Beach, we'd go see him. But these, these folks, they weren't poor, they weren't rich, um, they weren't hurting per se, but they were pissed off. And what were they pissed off at? That the people below them were getting food stamps and other things helped by the government. And the people above them were getting tax breaks and other things to make it easier for them, you know, not to pay taxes. And they were mad. So Trump comes out. And uh, first thing he says is, I was driving over here, and the former president of Mexico called me and told me that they're not paying for the wall. And these people boo. And Trump says, guess what? The wall just got 10 feet higher. And they all cheer. Right? <laughs> and he says, you heard me talk about draining the swamp. Let me tell you how I can drain the swamp. I'm in the swamp. I'm one of the people who take advantage of everything. I know every tax break. I know every way to, to do. He didn't use the word fraud, but he might as well. He, he said, I know all this. I'm, I can take care of it. You need somebody who's experienced this to take care of it. These people go crazy. So I leave there thinking to myself, wait a second, there's something going on here. Now, I live now in, in a suburb of Akron called Talmadge. And I'm driving down the street, and all of a sudden, on this lawn, 
which I've never seen a sign for a school levy, a Trump sign goes up. Something going on here. Last week on that same lawn that, 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 that I viewed in 2016, a van sign went up. And I realized then, as I do now, that you know that there was something going on here. But the but the the the, the point is that, and I'll take a dig at, at, at my fellow Democrats here now. And if you want to take away anything from this about local politics, instead of you hungry, remember remember two things. One, a campaign never ends. Election day may come, but the campaign never ends. And the best defense. Is an offense. Thank you. Think we have time. Maybe do you have a question, sir? We have time for one last question. Go ahead. Okay. All right. First of all, thank you very much. Great conversation. Really appreciate your insight. Um, you know, I represent an Italian company and a Swiss company, also a German company, and they had a lot of resentment towards a term called the pigs nations. So these were the nations that were considered to be anchors of the European Union financially. And there was a lot of resentment. There's a lot of hostility I know in Italy against the North versus the South. As a matter of fact, in Italy, they want to kind of separate themselves. The North as the industrial powerhouse and the South as kind of a tourist industry, service industry type of place. So when I hear the term backsliding, I wonder if maybe that isn't a little bit leading. And maybe just think in terms of political climate, conditions, economic climate, and lack of an external enemy, which I think has happened in the United States here over the past uh, 30 years. With the lack of an external threat, we have managed to turn on each other. And can you please comment if you feel that creates a climate that is right for authoritarianism? Thank you. Um, Who would like to see this one? Um, I'll go first. Uh, one of the principles of, um, of politics, not my principle, uh, not 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 you know anybody believes in democracy's principle, but it's to create a boogeyman. And what, what Trump was able to do, still able to do it, is that he always has, you know, his followers now believing in something that doesn't exist. But it's a boogeyman, whether it's that the refugees going to come over the Mexican border and they're going to rape, you know, your women, uh, they're going to burglarize your home, or they're going to bring COVID with them. Uh, if you say it often enough, you got people believing it. And so he understood and still understands branding. He also understands what I said about the campaign never ends. He's still campaigning. He's on TV whenever he wants to be on TV. He has a rally. It's, it's, it's covered. Um, he's, he's got people repeating what he says. You know, the 57% the, the, the of Republicans believe that the election was stolen. They also believe that what we saw on January 6th was just a bunch of people protesting patriots who just got a little bit out of hand. And, and, and so, you know, when you have that type of opposition um, and people start believing it it, 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 it leads me to ask the following question, which 
which is rhetorical, but I'll ask it anyway. How many political parties do we have in the United States? Most people would say two. I say six. Democrats, Republicans. Let's call Green Libertarians a third party. Okay? What are the three other parties? Idiots, imbeciles, and morons. <laughs> and we have plenty of them here. And Orban just proved again that they have many of them in Hungary. Elliot? Thanks. I have uh, two uh, quick things to say. The first, you referred to the pigs. These were the countries, Portugal, Italy, Ireland, Greece, and Spain, that were on the wrong end of the Euro crisis. Um, remember when the, uh, after the financial crisis, Eurozone hits this crisis. And so, and there was this tension between the wealthy countries, especially Germany, Finland, and these countries that were in need of the bailout, um, and bitterness about the austerity. There's a lot of lingering bitterness. But I know that only of those countries, only Greece is noted as having, uh, uh, I looked this morning at the varieties of democracy indexes, only Greece has had any slippage towards our autocracy. Um, and that is because the, um, um, uh, the, the I can't remember why, executive, uh, relationship between the executive and the legislature. So I think that's really interesting. Um, and I, I have to think more about that. But I wanted to leave on, on this other note because uh, you clearly, for most of the EU countries, there is a new enemy. <laughs> it's, the, it's Russia. And we've seen this remarkable um, unity in areas of sanctions. Who knew, did you know that? I mean, forever the Europeans have been cooperating in the area of defense and security, but who knew about it, right? They have these joint battalions, they go all over the world, but nobody knows about this. But now, a friend of mine works in the European Commission there in that area, and he, he wrote me the other day that when Biden went to Europe, that Biden actually went to the European Commission. He always goes to NATO to talk about these things. So there's something happening. So, you know, in my area of academia, we always ask um, whether uh, you really need to, a war would, would to take these steps that, say, Germany made in the 19th century towards unifying. You need a war to do that, or was Europe sort of on its own <laughs> doing that? And now we're never going to, we may never find out, is, is, is how I'm leaving you. And so the thing to look for is this question of fiscal federalism. Right now, there isn't a central treasury to speak of in Brussels, because you don't tax directly, you don't tax Europeans directly. All the money comes from member governments. So look for that and a, a distribution mechanism to see what, you know, where is this European project going? Are they really moving? They're not a nation state, they never will be. There'll be something different, there's some kind of polity, but that'll tell you a lot about where the Europeans are going. I think Jerry has one last pressing comment. Yeah, I, 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 it's not so much about, about you know, Europe, but since I have people here who I think are somewhat interested in politics, um, those of you of a certain age, uh, who I call Generation Extra, um, may, may remember when you were younger and you got involved in politics because something pissed you off. Uh, and whether that was a war that you didn't want our country to be involved in, whether that was civil rights or whether that was women's issues or, or whatever. 
Well, we're at a stage right now in this country where we got to find some people that are pissed off. Now, those of us of a certain age, you know, have uh, most of our lives behind us. I hope we live a long time, but we don't have a lot of future left here. And we got to look to the younger people. And when I say younger people, my, my, my kids are around 50 years of age. Their parents fought for everything that they have now and take for granted. They didn't have to fight for a woman's right to choose, although that's certainly hopefully will get them pissed off uh, based on what happened recently. So it's the grandkids. It's the ones that are turning 18 and voting age. What are they pissed off about? They're pissed off about anything? I think they're pissed off about climate change, and climate change is something we talk about, but they'll do a damn thing about because they're going to live most of the future, and they want to be able to breathe the air and to drink the water. They're concerned about about about, issues about democracy. They're concerned about issues about about gay, gay rights and many other things. And unless we get them turned on uh, and get them to start getting involved in politics the way we did by backing candidates uh, to do the right things, uh, we're in for for a very depressing time in the future. So I, uh, you know, I urge you to not only get involved, and most of you. Uh, here are, but to get those young people involved because they're the future. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for today's forum, Happy Dog Takes on the State of European Democracy. We've been joined today by Jerry Austin, a political strategist, and Dr. Elliot Posner, professor and chair of the Department of Political Science at Case Western Reserve University. Today's forum is part of the City Club of, of City Club in the Community series sponsored by Bank of America. We're grateful for their support. Be sure to join the City Club this Friday, May 6th. We will celebrate Law Day with our friends at the Cleveland Metropolitan Bar Association. This year, we will discuss the Constitution in times of change with the Honorable Patricia M. Blackman, former judge of the 8th District Court of Appeals. She will be in conversation with Ohio Supreme Court Justice Melody Stewart. Tickets are available for the forum, and you can purchase tickets and learn more at cityclub.org. Thank you all for joining us today, both here at the city, at the Happy Dog and streaming live. This forum is adjourned. <laughs>